Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff. Buckle up for this one. My man Tim Ryan is an American activist. He's a drug abuse interventionist. He's an author and a speaker, and he's the founder and executive director of A Man in Recovery. He's got a book. He's got an incredible wife. They have an incredible mission, and Tim has been in the game for a very long time recovery-wise. He is 10 years sober as of early November 2022, but he had a lifetime, it feels like, talking to him of addiction, heroin addiction while he was extremely successful living in Chicago, working in one of the most beautiful buildings, living in one of the most beautiful areas, all the while a complete junkie and heroin addict until he finally ran out of moves. Uh, his story of recovery is not one that's all unicorns and rainbows. He lost a son to addiction in his early recovery, and he talks about how he was able to find the strength and recovery to get through that and how he uses that experience to help other people that are going through the same kind of thing today. This guy's the man. Uh, he said at the very end, if I could have a stamp on my body or a bumper sticker that said property of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would do it. This guy is a great representation of what true sobriety is all about. Tim Ryan. But first, Kevin Souza. Okay, so you grow up outside of Chicago. I, you know, I know a lot about your story, but the folks listening don't. What was it like for you growing up uh, as a young, a young future alcoholic? You know, it was it was different. You know, we were I was born in '68. I'm 54, so it was the '70s. Um, my parents, for some reason, couldn't have kids, so they adopted four kids. My older brother Dan was two years older than me. Me and then my little brother and sister, Katie and Kevin, they're twins. They're uh, Chippewa Indian. So we were the the different family because back then there was no Hispanics, African-Americans. So my little brother and sister got called a lot of derogatory names. I learned to protect them with my fists in my mouth. But we we're latchkey kids. My dad worked at the Board of Trade with E.F. Hutton for 26 years uh, never missed a day of work, ultimately was senior vice president, ran the whole country. My mom uh, helped co-found a company by the name of Market Day, which was a food co-op, a nonprofit that made money for schools that blew up nationwide. You know, there was no consequences. They they did the best they could. We had a good life. We lived on a lake and the lake was my world, water skiing, fishing, sailing, we could walk across out into the fields and go shoot shotguns and go shoot skeet. You know, I had a good childhood. But what had happened with me was my best friend was 18. I was a freshman in high school. He was a senior in the drinking age in Wisconsin was 18 years old. And how far so were 14, you from how far were you from Wisconsin? Half hour. Half okay. hour from Lake Geneva. Okay. So, and that's like the Hamptons of the Midwest. So Randy and I, every weekend, we're going up to Lake Geneva drinking and I'd walk in with his ID, give it to somebody else. He'd walk in. But back then, nobody was getting DUIs. You knew all the cops. You got pulled over. They poured out your beer. They called your parents to pick you up. 
At 15, I, I was hanging out with some older kids. I experimented with cocaine. First line I did that night, I had a, a quarter gram fronted to me. And, you know, I got on the work program. I ran a pizza restaurant and I'd get out of school at 1030 junior and senior year. I'd go home. I'd go to the pizza place, flip on the ovens, go home, water ski all afternoon and then go open up the pizza shop at four. But every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, it was party, party, so party. During the week, though, cocaine. you sort of you sort of kept it going. Like, like kept, kept it together. Kept it going and, and still no consequences. I, I went down to college in Louisiana and, you know, I, I it was a great experience. You learn manners, you learn respect. Um, but I also learned that ecstasy was legal in the state of Texas in 85 and they made it illegal. And there was a lot of pharmaceutical grade ecstasy sitting around. So we started running X between we'd go to Mississippi, pick up 10 grand cash, drive to Houston or Dallas, wherever they want us, pick up 10,000 hits of X for a buck a piece, come back, sell it. The money guy got his money. And and it just allotted me the opportunity to do more drugs and party and get into hallucinogenics. And school was a uh, a party thing for me. I think my best report card, I had a, a 2.0 grade average. My mom framed it because that's the type of kid I <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah, but hold on. ADD. See, you talk about, you know, you had a 2.0 GPA. But your story, uh, from the very beginning, you knew how to make money. I mean, you're talking about it right now. You weave it into your conversation like it's second nature. It's not second nature for all of us. It was, certainly wasn't second nature for me. But you're growing up and you're finding out ways to make money. And even though you're doing a, a, a ton of drugs and you're drinking a lot, you're I still- I always worked. Oh, you know, yeah. my dad and still, my dad was dirt poor growing up. And my grandfather was born in 1880. So he didn't even have my dad until after the depression, he got remarried. I think my grandma was 40 and my grandfather was 60 or 65, but he died when my dad was 15 and my dad instilled work ethic. I mean, on the weekends when I was nine years old, my older brother, Dan, and I worked at my dad's friend's bar and we'd hump up, you know, 200 cases of beer, all the soda pop buckets of ice for I can remember we got $2.50 each. We got a Hershey bar. We got a pack of double mint gum and all the soda pop we could drink. I've always worked. I mean, my dad taught us if you if I wanted boat gas, you go rake the leaves, go earn the money to pay for it. He bought the boat, but you want to use it, you pay for it. So I'm grateful for that, you know. Yeah. But of course, it allowed me the opportunity to... <laughs> to always work for myself if needed and, and hide in my addiction ultimately. When did stuff start to kind of, you mentioned no consequences, you're making money, but you're doing a lot of drugs and you're drinking, you're also dealing drugs. When did you start to have consequences? You know, I can remember, must have been out of high school in one of the summers where some girlfriends of mine had a party. And I can remember Heather and, and Lisa pulling me aside and saying, Tim, you've got to stop. You know, you're out of control. And I knew I was, but man, I love cocaine. I love partying. But what I did is I kept people at bay. I, I knew everyone. I was friends with the freaks, the jocks, the losers, everyone in between. But I didn't like people getting too close to me because I didn't want them to know. But it was really after college when I came back and dropped out and I met a guy, Roger, <clears throat> that was 20 years older than me, but he had the, he had the coke up and we'd literally go to Chicago every day. We'd go sit in a noon mass on the North side of Chicago in a Columbia. And that's when the Colombians were the big cocaine dealers. And a lady had hand us two ounces of cocaine in a, in a newspaper. We'd leave mass. 
we would go back, sell the one ounce, which paid for both. And, and we we're smoking an ounce of cocaine every day. And it got to a point to where I needed to stop. I started stealing checks from my mom's business, from my brother's bank account. And in January of 1990, at 21 years old, I checked myself into treatment. And what was that experience so I, like? Your first one. Go ahead. What was that experience like? I loved it, you know, but I went in with the 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 thinking that I wanted to quit doing drugs and I wanted to figure out how to drink like a normal person. I went through the motions and <clears throat> there was, I can remember there was 13 Chicago cops. So I thought all the cops were alcoholics. I didn't realize uh, Parkside Lodge had the EAP contract, but you know, now I know those things, but uh, I can remember two days before I got out, actually three weeks in, they sat me down and said, your father's insurance has run out, but you really need to stay another week. And I signed a document. I think I ended up having to pay 25 grand for another week. But uh, a guy came in and spoke who was in long-term recovery. There was 38 of us as clients, <clears throat> shared his message. And when he was done, he said, one of you will be sober in a year and a third of you will be dead. And I put up my hand. I said, excuse me, what did you say? He said, listen to me, kid. A third of you will be dead in a year and one of you will be sober. And it scared me. I said, what do I do? He said, don't drink, get a sponsor, work steps and go to meetings. So I went to the Chris Lake Alno Club. I put my hand up. I'm looking for a sponsor. Nobody would pick on me and be like, yes, got away with it again. See, I'm the guy that thought I could get sober through osmosis. I could quote the big book like the back of my hand. I could tell you everything you needed to hear. But I did step one and step 12. I did no internal work and <clears throat> started a water ski school with my buddy, Mike Frankenbush, and had an asphalt seal coating business and had all my buddies working for me and making money and going to meetings and having fun. And I started competing in barefoot water skiing again in 1990 that spring. And that summer, I won Illinois State, Michigan State, Wisconsin State. I slotted to win the U.S. Nationals and at the Midwest Regionals, I fell in a trick run and blew out L4, L5, and S1 in my lower back. And my career was over instantly when Dr. Wu introduced me to a drug called Vicodin. I didn't like opiates at the time. I went back to smoking weed. Two days after smoking weed, I went back to drinking. As soon as I started drinking, I started doing cocaine and uh, burned those businesses. My partner said, Tim, I'm taking the ski school to Florida. You're not coming with. You're a liability. And you know, as the story goes, I relocated to Austin, Texas to get away from drugs, pulled credit card fraud on my friend, uh, got to spend some time in the Travis County Jail. My go-to was always go back to meetings. So I started going to meetings at the Bolden Group and the 101 Club in Austin. And I met some guys that were all sober marketing cable television door to door. <clears throat> so I got in with them and we spent about six months in Austin making money. I traveled across uh, the country to Michigan, Houghton Lake and all that. SeaTech Cable, I still remember it. Made a ton of money and I had the opportunity to go to Buffalo, New York and, and be a manager. I did that for about six months, traveled the country. And a year later, the gentleman with Jones Intercable, Dan Templeton, I still remember his name, called me and said, Tim, I need you to come back and run another cable project, but start your own company. And I did. And shacked up with the lady 10 years older than me, started drinking, made, uh, you know, I had 60 people working for me at that time with the third largest cable marketing company nationwide. And I was profiting about 25 to 30 grand a week 
um, made my first million, but was right back to smoking cocaine and giving my drug dealer this, 20 grand a month. This to whole time, cocaine. It I was mean, insane. This, yeah, this story is amazing. This whole time, are you in and out of sobriety? This whole, yeah. this whole time? So yeah, you're once, in and I, out. once I went to Buffalo the second time, when I was in Buffalo the first time, I was sober the whole time. And then we left there and went to Colorado and California, and I ended up going back there. And as soon as I came back to New York by myself, I started drinking. And a, a, a gentleman that had worked for me the year prior had divorced his wife, and I had to bring presents to her house. And, and I had her number, and I messaged her, and she invited me over for dinner. And I brought bought a bottle of Captain Morgan and never left. And, <laughs> and next thing I started, the, and my life was so friggin' insane. I, I don't know how I how i lived through it to be honest no me, neither, I mean, neither do i you 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 ended up meeting your first wife and you talk about that like the fact that she was instrumental in in, in your life for for so long uh, what, so yeah i met yeah. her after i buried the marketing company in new york I, I i went from making you know 25 30 grand a week to moving back to illinois i owed the irs 80 grand i was uh, about a quarter million in debt and I took a job for 300 bucks a week uh, as a data processing recruiter, working out of a guy's basement, learning the technology space recruiting. He happened to be sober um, at that time and started making money, started drinking, got my first house. And um, then uh, about a year later, I went to work in the management consulting space. And that's where I met uh, Shannon, my future wife. And, you know, we started dating and I got her pregnant. So I dragged her to the courthouse and married her. And she had Nicholas who was three years old, who had a deadbeat dad, never knew him. So I adopted Nick right away and we had Max, Tanner and Abby. Um, but in that, you know, 16 years of marriage, I was sober one year. I mean, I was completely drinking. Ultimately, I got into doing heroin and it was just a shit show. And you know what? I worked hard. I, I ran, I was a Cub Scout pack master for eight years and every parade and all this, I, I did everything. I was very involved, but nobody knew I was doing. How did you maintain stuff. that functionality where people don't know? Because, because we're talking about heroin's a hell of a drug. You know, it was interesting because Max, Tanner and Abby were all born and they were nine months later, another pregnant with another. They, they're all, they're only a couple of years apart each. And I quit doing cocaine and went back to 12-step meetings, got about 14 months sober, started another consulting firm, built a, a beautiful house. Life was good. And again, going to meetings, but not working a program. And I bet, met a guy by the name of Joel, who was 32, we're the same age at the time. And uh, it turns out Joel had worked for a company in Chicago called On Time Courier, delivering packages as a bike messenger. And I said, did you happen to know a guy by the name of Darris? And he said, that hillbilly from Louisiana with the red pickup truck? I said, yeah, that's Darris. He said, how do you know Darris? I said, he lived across the street from me in college. We became best friends. And when I came back, I dragged him with, and he ultimately <laughs> went to work for this company. So Joel and I had an instant friendship. And about three weeks later, he asked me to take him to Chicago to move out of his apartment. As I'm moving him out, his roommate Saba popped out of one of the rooms and said, who are you and what are you doing here? I said, I'm Tim. I'm helping your friend Joel move out. I said, who are you and what are you doing? <laughs> he said, my name's Saba and I'm doing heroin. Do you want to do some? Now, I was 14 months clean, but not working a program. I said, sure. I did one bag of heroin and that was it. And game on him. That 
went from one bag to five grams a day to eight overdoses, dead multiple times and multiple driving on revokes and multiple DUIs and the wheels came off. But for the first, I don't know, probably eight years, I just did heroin. I, I quit drinking. Nobody knew. I worked in the corporate world. I ran a management consulting firm. I mean, Canagra Foods was one of my biggest clients. And I had taken away a ton of work from IBM and Price Waterhouse. Our team managed at the time the biggest SAP implementation in the world. And I recruited and hired everyone and I ran the entire project, full blown heroin addiction. How, Nobody about, knew. how about your wife? Was she was she onto this at all? Or was oh she... shit, she knew. She she okay. was trying to send me to Thailand and all this. But you know, in hindsight, I don't want to speak for her, but it's like she co-signed my BS. Mm -hmm. And if I was functioning and paying the bills, I was left to my own devices because no one was telling me what to do. But in hindsight, in 2008, I got sent to prison the first time for four driving on revokes. I got four driving on revokes in a year. I got two of them by Officer White. <laughs> the same guy. Cop. It's impossible, right? Eight months apart in two different cars. Who does that happen In Chicago. To? Tim Ryan. Yeah, it <laughs> happens to me. But anyhow, that was uh, January 25th of 2008. I got sentenced to a year in prison. You do 61 days, they release you. I got out and I can remember I told all my kids I was going to India on business for two months because I worked in the technology space. And when I would call home, it would come up prison. And I can remember Nick would be like, Dad, are you calling from the prison hotel? I'm like, yeah, I'm calling from the prison hotel. <laughs> Once I got out, I think Nick was, I don't know, 14. I told him 13. I told him the truth. A couple of years later, I told all the other kids. But in December 16th of 2010, because when I got out of prison, I went right back. I started another executive search firm. I had an office in the Wrigley building on Michigan Avenue, making a lot of money. And I went right back to use and, and my heroin addiction got really bad. I mean, my day would consist of, and I didn't have a driver's license, so I couldn't drive. And uh, December 16th of 2010, I drove one more time and I overdosed while I drive and I hit two cars and I put four people in the hospital, one being a nine month old baby. And by the grace of God, they're okay. I sat in Cook County jail for a week, eventually manipulated my mom into putting up the bail money. And uh, I got out, I went right back to using started fighting this case. And now everyone knows I'm a heroin addict. And in the middle of fighting it about three months in, my old, I was taking a hot bath. I was dope sick. And Nick came in the bathroom, who was 17. He said, what's wrong, Pops? And I said, what do you think, you idiot? I'm dope sick. He said, not anymore, Dad. Today's your lucky day. And he threw two bags of heroin on the bathroom counter. And I got out of the tub and I did them. I remember going in his room and I said, Nick, what, what, what in the, can I swear on here? Oh, yeah. I said, Nick, what in the fuck are you doing? He said, don't worry, Dad. I'm, j I'm just selling a little bit. I said, you need to shut this down a little uh, immediately. I said, this is heroin. This isn't weed. This is heroin. And you know what this drug did to me and has done to me? And my son looked right at me and said, well, Dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why would you say that? He said, well, we got a nice house, got an office in the Wrigley Building. You make a good living. So Nick's delusional mind, because I function, I was successful couple months later, I caught him snorting heroin. We started doing heroin together. And that's how my son and I bonded. Unless you've been in addiction like this, you don't comprehend it. I get it. But the, cra the crazy thing is, Pete, parents will justify 
drinking alcohol with their 14, 15, 16 year old kid. But when it comes, oh, you did drugs with them, you're a monster. Alcohol is the number one killer out there. And and I tell parents, so your kid, uh, you know, 22 years old gets a DUI and totals a fa- to- kills a family. You blame alcohol, but you don't go back to 14 years old when mom and dad said it's okay to start drinking in the house. They enabled that behavior. But but anyhow, not here nor there. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now wherever books are sold. Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. Welcome to One Star Rewind, a new podcast about those dreaded one-star reviews that every business owner hates to receive, but yet every customer loves to read. During this podcast, we'll peel back that one-star review to better understand how it happened, when it happened, and what the business owner is doing after receiving that one-star review. This podcast will be about love, hate, and laughter. On One Star Rewind, we will meet with real business owners who will tell their stories and how they do rely on reviews for their business. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or download us at roguemedianetwork.com. Please subscribe, but only rate and review for not a one-star review. Join us each time for a new review and a new story. Frozen, Frozen, heroes, gonna tell you about Frozen, Frozen, Heroes, gonna tell you about. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. And we have a fantastic new podcast to tell you about. Bros, Foes, and Heroes. It's the two of us looking into the world of comics, breaking down some characters that you may have never heard of, and some that are just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so Zach comes up with a character each time, and uh, I go into it just completely blind. I don't know who this person is or what their abilities are or anything. And, and basically, I guess we kind of go over their origin story and just some of the ridiculous stuff that maybe, especially Golden Age stuff. Oh, Golden yeah. Age stuff is always the best. And we will make sure to highlight all of the shenanigans and just absolute weirdness yeah. of everything. Yeah, that's right. So subscribe today and uh, follow us on Instagram at Bros Bros Heroes. And if you don't, I know where you live. Not really, but please subscribe. <laughs> Frozen, Frozen, heroes. <laughs> Um, what are we doing here, Rusty? What are we gonna do? Uh, yep, we're doing the uh, King of the Hill rewatch podcast. King of the Hill yes, rewatch sir. podcast. Yeah, so we're gonna go through one episode at a time. Uh, come along for the ride, please. Come check it out. 
And, and give me give me a good um, like Dale Gribble quote to go out on. Wingo. Yeah, Wingo. <laughs> Wingo. Wingo. All right. Well, join us. Uh, join us for uh, the uh, King of the Hill rewatch podcast. in the heart of Texas. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Do you hear that? It's coming from the house. It's coming from inside the house. Uh, do you mean? Could it be? The Bolter House. New from Rogue Media, two haunted hotties talking about haunted places. Every episode, we dive deep into the darkest places and give you a bit of history. We're getting spooky in all the right places. You've gobbled your last ghoul. Follow along for the craziest and spookiest stories with Debbie's Dark Tourism. The Stanley Hotel, Winchester House, The Alamo, Hotel Monte Vista, and more spooky places. Find us at the underscore Poltergals. P-O-L-T-E-R-G-A-L-S. Look over your shoulder. It's us, the Poltergals. Wherever you consume the podcast, you can find us there. Let's let's go and, backwards uh, real quick. You mentioned yeah. uh, you were about to say what your day consisted of, and before oh, yeah. we kind That's of move move into the recovery, ADHD. yeah, I, so I, I want to hear what your day consisted of at the height of this heroin I'd get addiction. Get up at about four thirty in the morning, five. I would uh, make coffee. My coffee cup would be half vodka, half coffee. I'd make a big rig of heroin. I'd shoot some dope. I'd get ready for work. I'd get to the Aurora train station. I'd take the 8 a.m. express train to downtown Chicago, which was an hour ride. I'd get in at 9. Uh, that's because the bar opened at Union Station. I could have a three or four martinis. I'd call Flacco, my dope dealer. He'd meet me at the Wrigley building. I'd get five grams of heroin. I'd go up to my office. Uh, I'd shoot heroin. Uh, I was at the Billy Goat Tavern five days a week uh, at 10.30 uh, a.m. because that's when they opened. And I thought Jeff, the bartender, was just the coolest guy because he had worked at the Billy Goat for 26 years. And I'd sit in there and talk like I was some big shot. And people like, how did you make money? Back then, the technology space was blowing through the roof. So I could place someone making, you know, a hundred thousand base salary and I'm getting a $25,000 fee. I placed someone making 200 grand. I made 50 grand. So I could always make a deal. It might be a month or two, but I always had money to, to support my habit. Um, I go to the Billy goat the afternoon. I go back to my office, make some calls, shoot some dope. And usually two to three to four nights a week, I slept under Lower Wacker Drive with the homeless people because that's where I was more comfortable instead of being in my five-bedroom house with my wife and four kids. I actually had Patch and uh, Mike, who were two homeless guys I met over by Union Station, and I provided them with uh, burner cell phones and uh, money so they could have a couple jabs of heroin, which was 14 to 16 bags. And I said, anytime I call you, you need to be at my office within an hour with, with one of those jabs of heroin. So I never ran out of drugs. I always had a dealer on speed dial. And it's disgusting to think that's what was important to me because I didn't want to get sick. Being And I've been sick thousands of times and I'm going to quit. And, you know, in hindsight, it's like, why didn't my wife or parents intervene and do an intervention and 
it was insane but yeah that's uh that's where my day consisted of and and where it took me to and then ultimately october 30th of 2012 after fighting my case for 21 months judge wattis at 26 in california downtown chicago slammed his gavel and said seven years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And he wanted to give me 12 to 15 years. What's that feeling he, like when you hear him say that? Are you relieved you know, I, almost? I, I can remember it like I, I've got a memory like a friggin' elephant. Yeah, I, I do too. I respect that. that. <laughs> and I can remember standing there. And here's me. I, I walk into court with the Hells Angels Cardhart jacket on that I've got 60 bags of heroin hidden in. So I take my coat off, I go up, and and I can remember them, they're all arguing. And he said, three, three, and one, and Sam's this gavel. And I look at my lawyer, I said, what's that mean? He said, seven years, but you'll be out in a year, year and a half. So they took me in back, and the bailiffs got me, or whatever. And I said, look, I need my coat. He said, no, you don't. I said, it's got my wallet and cell phone. So he sent my lawyer to get it. I gave my lawyer the cell phone, my wallet. I said, mail this back. And they took me in the holding cell and bags of heroin started falling out of my coat. <laughs> so I was able to get them out and, and sneak it in. And I just didn't want to be dope sick before you can see a doctor there and they give you meds. But I didn't realize if I would have got caught with that amount of heroin, it's 15 to 45 years first offense. Wow. Yeah. So that was another God shot. And uh, now, do you stay sober in prison? <laughs> Hell yeah, I did. You did. So I went from Cook County Jail three days, then they transferred you to Northern Illinois Receiving Center right next to Stateville Prison in Joliet, Illinois. There you're locked down 24 7. You never leave your cell until they figure out what prison they're sending you to based on your security risk, what type of crime. Are you a sex offender? Are you a murderous rapist? Are you just some drug addict who likes to drive cars like me? <laughs> but then the sickness kicked in, and I shit and puked myself for two weeks straight. I did not sleep a wink for a month, for a month, total insomnia. But I'll never forget that pain. And, and I was damn near drinking a gallon of vodka and, and shooting five grams of heroin a day. I had a severe drug addiction, but... I'll never forget that pain. And about two weeks in, once I got over the vomiting and I could get some water down, I looked out of my cell window and I just put my head up and I, I said, God, higher power, Allah, Buddha, Fred, whatever's out there, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use. And I swear I will turn my will and life over to you. And I kind of sat back and I said, please let me get into Sheridan prison because there's 28 prisons. There's only two with the therapeutic drug treatment program. And the next day I was transferred to Sheridan prison. And I'll tell you, I was the happiest son of a bitch. Um, they, they bust you in there. It was 40 miles from my house. Uh, you do 30 days in the seg building. You do 30 days in orientation hall and it's structured. You do group three hours a day, five days a week. They got a structure board. You fight, you're kicked out. You're belligerent, you're kicked out. And I didn't realize for every four months you do, they take 30 days off your sentence. So I got into one of the little buildings in back after SAG orientation hall because you don't want to be on a deck with 100 guys, three stories tall. It just smells like ass. And <laughs> it's disgusting. But anyhow, I got into one of the little buildings. When I walked down the hall and I walk into the cell and there's this big black guy, 400 pounds, all muscle, sitting on the bunk reading an AA big book. And I kind of walked in the doorway and I said, hey, man, what's up? And he looks, he's got a book and he looks at me like I bothered him. And he goes, hey, Whitey, you into recovery? 
I said, yeah, why? He said, because if not, brother, you ain't coming in this fucking cell because that's all we do in here. I said, I'm into recovery. He said, hey, I'm Big Perk. Nice to meet you. I said, hey, Big Perk, I'm Tim. And then he looks at me again. He goes, Tim, I think I'm going to call you Powder. I said, you can call me whatever you want. And Perk was a gang chief with uh, conservative vice lords for 25 years. In Chicago. Uh, yeah, he's a ruthless man. I mean, I can tell you a story when his... Uh, his cousin had sold $25,000 from him, so he duct taped him to a chair and he ripped off his lips with a set of ice scripts. And wow. it was just business. If you owed him over 400 bucks, he'd take you to a third or fourth story abandoned building and he'd pull out his gun and say, where do you want me to shoot you? Or you can jump out of the window. And uh, most people jumped out of the window and they paid him the next day. He had been to prison uh, 10 different times. His son had been shot and killed on the west side of Chicago three months prior to me walking into that cell, Hanson. And Hanson was married. He wasn't gang affiliated and uh, had a great career. And he saw some guys beating up a girl and he got involved and spun him off. And some gang guys came up and lit him up, thought he was a gang member and killed him. So, you know, Perk and I, we never got a TV I wasn't there to do push-ups for noodles and get swole. We went through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. We read 350, 400 books. Uh, we did group every morning, three hours a day, five days a week. We walked the yard every day and had a 12-step base meeting. We sat in the day room at night and had a 12-step base meeting. I was there to change. I watched a corn grow get cut down. Uh, my wife at the time had brought two of my kids to visit every two weeks. I can remember bringing Nick once and he was just high as a kite. I can remember my daughter, Abby, coming at 12 years old and Abby had boobs and looked older and was in her cheerleading outfit, but wanted to come see dad and all those inmates gawking at her. And I swore I'd never do this to my children again. And you know, my wife divorced me in prison. We lost our home in foreclosure. Uh, they had to move into uh, Shannon's mom's house about 20 minutes away. My kids had to change schools because How, of me. Let, me. let me ask you, you, and you take responsibility, you say because of me, but what is happening to you while you're in prison and you're you're getting into recovery? Because, you know, I've been lucky enough, and I don't do it anymore. I used to do it, and I need to do it again, is when you, you take meetings to prisons, right? And you talk to those guys in there, and they will tell you that there's not a lot of great 12-step meetings in that, a lot of times in the prison system. So for somebody like you, an inmate, to bring that to them, I would imagine that's there's something so special about that and something that you get out of that. So And as you're in the midst of this great recovery you know, how are you feeling about all this going on outside the walls I, of prison? So so the prison <clears throat> had a contract with a company by the name of Westcare. And Westcare is a, a nonprofit that does prison programs, cognitive behavior therapy and all that Yahoo stuff. And, and they, they ran the program and it was good, but they brought in H&I. So every two weeks you had to sign up. You could go over to the church building and outside 12 step people came in and these were hardcore people. I actually got a crazy story. A guy by the name of Manny Mills, Google this guy's name, Manny Mills, had come in and, and he had done a program called Freedom of God's Way. So you sign up to get out of your cell because otherwise you're in it 18 hours a day. I signed up to go to the bar barbershop every two weeks just because you could go to the barbershop and it was like being in the street out there and people talking and BS. And so I, I, I made the time benefit me. But this Manny Mills guy had been a 
made a lot of money, did a bunch of fraud, went to prison for 35 years. He ended up doing six years in the Fed joint, but he started one of the first prison ministries. And he came in and was sharing his story. And after the second day, it's like the guy was talking to me and he looks at me and says, what's your name and why are you here in his broken Puerto Rican accent? And I said, I'm Tim Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a heroin addict. And, and I'm here to change. And he said, Tim, you got two choices. He said, you can go through the motions and be on the same bullshit you've been on, or you can change and let God open the doors and walk through them. And that's exactly what I did. So as we're going to leave, Manny had wrote a book called Radical Timeout. You can't make this shit up. <laughs> and he, he says, Tim, do you want a copy? I said, sure. And I grabbed it and I opened it. And the first thing I see is Crystal Lake, Illinois. That's my hometown. My grandfather built the first houses on the lake. That's where we lived. And I said, Manny, Crystal Lake, Illinois. He said, do you know the town? I said, yes, I grew up there. He said, that's where I paroled to, you know, however many years ago. And he said, Tim, we have a prison ministry and we'll pick you up at the gate and help you out. I said, I don't need that. But anyhow, I went back, read the book and I wrote him a letter. Four months later, I get a letter in the mail from Quantum Executive Search. Now, remember, I was in the search business. So I'm thinking I'm getting sued. <laughs> when I read this letter, and it's from a guy, Gary, and he says, hey, Tim, my name's Gary. He said, my dear friend, Manny Mills, shared your inspiring letter. And he said, I know who you are. He said, you owned Wobble Recruiting. You were our competition. He said, we're praying for you. And if you need anything, let us know. And when I got out of prison... Four days later, I went to an AA meeting, and then I went to this thing called Radical Timeout that they did once a week on, on the uh, Wheaton College's property, and it was all people going to prison or coming out from congressmen to aldermen in Chicago, and everybody came together. But I couldn't have made this stuff up and had this happen. And one of the other things, and I'll end with this. About two weeks in prison, you got to go over and get your dress clothes and your boots and he had to go to the school building. I walk up to the table and this guy, the CEO, looks up at me. And I said, hi, Mattress. He said, my name's Officer Nowak. Go stand in the corner. So I did. And he comes up to me. He goes, Tim, what are you doing here? I said, Mattress, what's up? He said, don't call me that name and do not let people know that you know me. They'll kick you out of here. Mattress lived on the property of Skydive Chicago, and I had been skydiving with him for 10 years. <laughs> so now one of the guards is a personal friend of mine or acquaintance. So it made me feel safer, if that makes any sense. But these were all God, God shots. Yeah, God shots, God winks, whatever you want to call them. And, and, they'll put wind, and they'll put wind in your sails. And when you start to turn your life over, like you asked or like you did, right, it's all action-based, Things like this start to happen. Now, you get out of prison, uh, and what starts to happen for you? So my, I can remember about two months prior to getting out, Shannon had come in and said, look, you got three options. Your parents are willing to help you. Um, they'll rent a house that all of us can cohabitate in. I said, no. She said, they'll rent a house for you and the kids. I said, I'm not going back to Oswego. Not a good idea. She said, they'll find a place for you. I said, put it in downtown Naperville. Find me a place because I, I had to walk. So my mom and uh, former wife found a little townhouse in downtown Naperville where I could walk downtown. I could walk to the Elno Club and I could walk to the train. Um, I got out December 16th of 2013 after doing 13 and a half months. Three years to the day, I caught my case. Another ironic moment. Shannon picked me up. Took me to the iPhone store, got a new phone, and, and 
took me to the townhouse that was set up and our furniture was in there because they're living at her mom's. All my kids came over that night. We had Portillo's and that's the last time I was together with them as a, my kids as a family. I went back into the technology space. I, I didn't, you know, four days later, my parole agent showed up. I went to a meeting, got another sponsor with 21 years, went through the steps again, didn't miss a meeting for two and a half years, went back into the technology space, but I was commuting two and a half hours each way to work by two trains and a bus because I had to pay child support, pay my bills. That lasted about three months. I was asked to start the first heroin anonymous meeting in DuPage County, Illinois. I did. Two weeks later, I had a 20-year-old kid come in. He said, well, hey, I take Xanax. Can I sit in? I said, sure. Two weeks later, I had a mom come in with her daughter, and she said, you operate differently. Can I sit in on the meeting? And I had an epiphany. Why don't I have the parents or loved one come with the person struggling at the same time since this is a family disease, and we'll talk everything and put it on the table. And mom's the enabler, dad's a foot up the ass, blah, blah. And it started blowing up. I ultimately had seven of these. You know, one was Dixon, Illinois. That was 100 miles from my house. I ran on Monday night. Tuesday night, I did Streeter, Illinois. That was 90 miles from my house. Wednesday night, I did Princeton, Illinois. That was 100 miles from my house. Thursday, we did Crystal Lake and Naperville. And Friday, I did DeKalb. And then I set up a nonprofit. I, I quit my job. I called my mom. I said, can I borrow 15 grand? She said, for what? I said, I'm going to set up this nonprofit, a man recovery foundation. I thought I was going to save the world. And she said, I have one question to ask you. I said, what's that? She said, are you going to pay me back this time? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, the money will be in your account tomorrow. And I set up my foundation thinking I'm going to save the world. How long had you been I, sober at this time? Almost two years. Okay. Almost two years. Um, had been through all the saps. And you got to understand, I've, I've been around the room since 1984, yeah. you know, since I was a sophomore in high school. So I'm and I'm living recovery now. I well, you're on fire. A guy that's doing the, the two and a half hour commute. To me, that just yeah. says so much about somebody who is of purpose and who is who is and, driven. And, and when I did that commute every night, I was back for the 8, 8, 8 p.m. AA meeting. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Saturday, I was at the club at six in the morning and I walked and I didn't have Uber money and cab money and all that stuff. So I did what I needed to do and I put in the damn work. Uh, my 14 year old son, Tanner, moved in with me. Um, Nick was in active addiction. He had been in treatment a couple more times. I started work. I stumbled into working in treatment. So that allotted me a paycheck to now run my nonprofit and never take a salary. I never took a salary from it. We gave away about a million and a half dollars. A bunch of that was my speaking event fees. But nevertheless, we helped thousands of people and it was a great run. But, uh, you know, I, I stumbled into treatment and at 19 months sober, um, Nick was in treatment for the sixth time. And I remember going to visit him and, and we were talking and he, he's 20 now. And he's like, dad, you know, you're sober. I'm sober. He's like, picture me and you, a father and son team speaking in high schools about our story. And I said, Nick, this would be epic, but I need you to stay sober. He's like, I will. He got out of treatment 30 days later. He's back in Cook County jail, trying to sell bogus pills to buy heroin he did 45 days in jail, got out. His mom picked him up, took him to lunch, fed him, and said, we're done. You're not coming to my house. You're not coming to your dad's. All you do is lie, cheat, and steal. He's like, I got it figured out. Five days out of jail, I called Nick, and I said, Nick, come to my house and get Narcan. We're starting to distribute that. And 
He said, Dad, I'm not on that bullshit anymore. And I believed him. Two days later, August 1st at six in the morning, Shannon called me and said, Nick overdosed again. She's coming to pick me up. And I normally don't share this part of the story. She is at my house in 10 minutes, got in her car, and I plugged my iPhone into her charger. And a song came up on my playlist by the band 6AM, which is Nikki Six's band that he did in correlation with his book called The Heroin Diaries. The song that came on was a call called Courtesy Call, and it's about finding someone dead OD'd in a hotel room. So I unplugged the phone immediately. We shot to Hinsdale Hospital, ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shanna Ryan here to see our son, Nick. He overdosed, and about 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. I knew instantly Nick was dead. No questions asked. And I'll ask people, what was my next thought? And they're like, oh, you wanted to get high? No, my son died on my 21-month sobriety date. My next thought was, I'm going to call my sponsor, which was my first call. And I went to a meeting that night, and I never looked back. Um, You know, I could get into going in and look at your dead kid and all this. And for years, I thought I killed Nick. And I didn't. I didn't turn Nick on to heroin. He did it on his own. Did he follow in my footsteps? Yes. Nick had been to treatment six times. Nick had been to sober living. Nick chose to use again, and he died. But what had happened... At the hospital, we're dealing with all this crap, trying to get family in. And the cops take me down the hall and they said, there they are. And there was two kids, two boys and a girl. And I said, who's that? He said, that's your son's girlfriend and his two friends that were with him. We're going to charge them all with drug-induced homicide. And I said, no, you're not. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get them all into treatment because that could have been me getting high with my son. But what I found out after the fact was Nick had, and his girlfriend had showed up at this guy Gary's house, and uh, he had snorted two bags of heroin, gave him, Gary gave him a bar of Xanax, you mix a benzodiazepine with an opiate, it suppresses your system, and about a half hour later, he was overdosing, and these kids didn't do a damn thing. They panicked, they put him on the sofa, they went in the basement, did more drugs, forgot about him, came up an hour later, he was dead. And then they drove around with his dead body for two, three hours, afraid to take it to the hospital. Um, I ended up getting his girlfriend sober. This kid, Gary, was in and out. I think one of the other kids died. But I got to tell you, after the fact, it's like, should I have done anything I don't know, because one of these kids called me last year, and he's like, yeah, I was with you, your son, when he died, and I want to tell you the truth. And I said, I know the truth, but why are you calling me? Well, I wanted you to know, and I said, why didn't you call 911 when my son was overdosing, you idiot? Because if you would have called 911, they had the Good Samaritan Law, the cops and paramedics would have come, hopefully revived them, taken the drugs, and left. Nobody gets arrested. So it's things like this in my son's passing that my wife and I, Jennifer, now educate youth on and law enforcement. You know, my high schools we've spoken and these kids don't know about the Good Samaritan law. I mean, it's well, what about anyhow, a, a couple you know, th- a couple things I want to touch on just yeah. of what you mentioned, because it's like it's such heavy stuff. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, what you're doing now. It's like the light, you know, at the end of the tunnel or whatever you want to call it. You're 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 working to get Narcan and all these different all these places where it's not right. And and we talk about how badly people need Narcan nowadays with just opioids. Every, I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. Right. Um, but I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned you're not responsible for your son's death and, and you know that, but when people come behind you, whether they're in recovery or they have a son who is, who's terribly addicted and, and they pass away, what do you tell those parents? What do you tell those guardians about, great, about life going question. forward? 
Great question, Peter, because I'm the guy that gets all those calls. And it was ironic when my current wife and I got together four years ago. That's we'll Jennifer, right? Yeah, I don't know okay. how much time you've got on here. Right, no, go ahead. Jennifer Jimenez, right? Oh, boy, she's going to kick your ass. Yeah. Jennifer Jimenez. Jimenez, Jimenez, Jimenez. All right, sorry. sorry. Yep, you just lost five bony po- bonus points <laughs> with my wife. You're going to have to earn those back. <laughs> What the, what the hell did you ask me? I'm already ADHD. Uh, how did you how did you get how do you share with other people that have those oh, experiences? So I get a lot of calls. You know, Jen and I, when we got together, we're doing all these events, and I can remember we're in. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name somewhere in Pennsylvania. We did like ten events in three days, and one of them was overdose awareness event. And there's about 400 people, and Jen can feel energy. And she said, Tim, it's dark in here. And you've got all these parents with their 12 and 14 year old and eight year old kids just in hysterics about their dead kid that died 12 years ago and 10 years ago. And so I get up on stage and I, I, I tell it the way it is. And I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I'm not here to coddle. This shit is life and fucking death. And, and, the, and you better realize it. And where it is now, people are dying like I've never seen before. So anyhow, I, I, I got up and I, I shared and spoke and I said, look, all you parents up here that are crying hysterically that your children died five, eight, 10 years ago, I said, you are all living through the day they died and you're stuck in a grief you're never going to get out of. I said, you're not celebrating the time your loved ones here are were on earth and all the magical memories you made, good, bad, and different. You're stuck in the day they died and you want to blame everyone. I said, the first person you might want to blame is looking in the mirror. Did you take any part in this? But there's help out there. I said, what I'd like to see is all you parents here have knowledge and wisdom. We've got treatment centers. We've got sober livings that these kids need guidance and direction. They need jobs. We need businesses. We need to come together and all be a part of this. And you parents can start some family groups and help parents whose kids are struggling and do some peer-driven stuff. And And help yourselves. Yeah. And it's like, take the negative, turn it into a positive because, you know, also the parents too, it happens. You know, they need to get trauma therapy. They they need to work with the therapist, but everybody wants to blame. And, and the baffling thing is we live out here in, you know, Beverly Hills, California now. And two and a half months ago, we had five kids OD at Hollywood High School. Um, two girls were in a bathroom and, and they weren't found for eight hours. And one of them died. And we tried getting into the schools. We're offered to come in for free. And you know what the LAPD scoop, school superintendent's answer is? We've now got Narcan in the schools. This bullshit with Narcan, what I was preaching eight years ago, they're preaching now. It's It should be everywhere. It's not even in the school systems in California. They're starting to put it in. And what I explained to the superintendent, I said, look, these kids don't know that if they're at a party at 15, they smoke, smoke some high-grade weed and someone offers them a pill or a line, if it's an opiate or fentanyl, they could die. Um, but they'll be addicted that quick. And Narcan is a tool to save a life, but we need to do so much more and educate. And, you know, we did two mass mailers to every school in California. We got three calls back. Wow. They don't want to talk about it. People's heads are still buried in the sand. And that's what's baffling to me. I mean, we're losing more people, but people are still in the sense they don't want to talk about it until it affects them. And then it's usually too late. What what are you guys doing now, you and Jennifer, as far as so just... When I'm, so when I met Jen, you know, 
I got out of prison, did that. I, I had another child, Mackenzie. I, I got rid of, you know, left her mom because she couldn't. Yeah, stay you you sober. met you met a woman, uh, a sober woman at the time, right? And yeah, then well, it didn't work supposedly, out. but yeah, not really. So <laughs> that's a that's a whole different shit show in itself. But we've got joint custody of our daughter, and I'm working on trying to get her out here full time. But I was at the top of my game. You know, I, I wrote a book called From Dope to Hope. I had a documentary on A&E, which is a day in the life of what I do. I was a guest of the 2016 State of the Union Address. And I'll tell you, that was a, a neat experience because I started doing a bunch of work with Congressman Bill Foster, who was just a, a great guy. And he got me hooked up with Senator Dick Durbin and all these other people. What's this, honey? My wife's passing me a note. Hey, honey, do you want to meet Pete? You lo he lost five bonus bonus points with you. Just you know. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I, I already. Why did you lose five bonus points? She wants to know. Because now. I said I said uh, Jimenez. Oh, he said he didn't say Jimenez. He said Jimenez. Or so I scarred him on that. Only joking. She said to be nice. And that's how I You're am. I'm man, all dude. over the place. My ADHD. I love it, but, dude. Uh, I love it. You got to. So anyhow, I, all this stuff happened. And, and Pete, for me, you know, I was working in treatment, putting a ton of people in. Then I'm running my nonprofit, but people don't understand. I had a board of directors, but, you know, I basically leveraged all the money. Somebody had call. I'm getting them set up to go to this peer driven. I'm buying the bus ticket, the plane ticket. I coordinate everything. And it, I had three cell phones and it was just, it got to be too much. And I thought I had to save everyone. And I've been to 150 funerals since my son died and, and they were all people I'd been working with or treatment or relapse or suicide. I quit going and I was experiencing a lot of trauma and I started, you know, I was doing 250, 300 speaking events and a lot of women were coming up and spewing all their trauma. And I said, look, I'm a speaker. I'm not a clinician. <clears throat> so I want to partner with another female. And of course, Jennifer, you know, was a supermodel and an actress and, you know, the the OG of long-term women's recovery. And, and I shot her a message. We'd been following each other on social media, but never interacted and said, hey, would you be interested in maybe partnering up to speak as a power couple or open a center, do interventions together? And she said, yeah. And turned out she was going to Florida. I was going to Florida. I flew down there and I was only there for two days and I got busy and I blew her off. Oh, well, then I get the message. Hey, talk about, hey, talk jerk, about uh, no bonus points. Boy, what an idiot. Yeah. yeah. She's like, hey, jerk, thanks for breakfast, lunch or dinner. <laughs> so we started talking in about six weeks in. She said, look, Tim, I think you're a great guy and, and it's strictly business. She said, but you're always saying you got to check your plan or this. If you want to do something, let's do it. Otherwise, I'm moving on. So she pissed me off. I bought a plane ticket that Tuesday. I texted it to her. I said, you can pick me up at Fort Lauderdale Airport Friday. I flew in. She picked me up, gave me a hug. We went right to a business meeting. Four hours after that was done, we were having lunch. I look, And I'm in the middle of my second divorce now. I looked her right in the eyes and I said, I'm going to marry you and spend the rest of my life with you. And she said, hold on. You know, you just met me. Maybe you want to finish your divorce. I said, that'll be done in the next four to five weeks. She goes, maybe you want to sow your oats. I said, I don't roll that way. I was divorced five weeks later. We uh, were engaged four months later and we got married that year, December 31st of 2019 down at the Justice of the Peace in Beverly Hills. And you know, from Jen being a supermodel, discovered at 13 and traveling the world and then 
music videos with people like, you know, Lionel Richie, Mick Jagger, Tupac Shakur, Babyface, and into acting, you know, or breakout roles in one of the most epic drug movies, Blow with Johnny Depp. And she played the drug lord's wife and Vanilla Sky and Charlie's Angels and Sweetest Thing. And at the top of her game, she couldn't stay sober. My wife hung herself in the psych ward and had to learn how to walk and talk and wheelchair to a walker. And Dr. Drew Pinsky was her doctor and said she called my mother-in-law three times and said, your daughter's one of these hopeless cases. We'll go through the motions, but I don't know if she's going to make it through the detox. And she did and got a kick-ass sponsor and Jen got sober in the hood in Compton. And two and a half years later, Dr. Drew called her and said, what are you up to? And she said, nothing. Why? And he said, well, I'm doing this spinoff show from Celebrity Rehab called Sober House, and I want you to run the house. And she said, why me? And he said, it's people like you that prove me wrong and keep me doing what I do on a daily basis. And she said, ain't that about a bitch? So <laughs> she did a bunch of seasons at Sober House, Celebrity Rehab, four seasons, Beverly Housewives. She was working for a program out of Florida, speaking all over the country for seven years. We got together, came out here. We had 85 speaking events booked and that thing called COVID hit. Ugh. And uh, we lost all that business in two weeks. Jenny and I both were about four months in. We're two people to get COVID. We had it for 10 weeks. It almost killed both of us. I would rather kick heroin in a prison cell than have what we had. It was we are saying our goodbyes and all this. We got through that. We started a podcast. We we're doing interventions in the, the heat of COVID. And uh, yeah, and now we're here. We're, we still do speaking events. We do interventions. Uh, I just filmed my first feature film four months ago. Jenny's back acting. We're consulting, executive producing, acting on a, a project on the opiate epidemic in Appalachia. We're consulting to a couple higher end treatment programs. Are you, and, and do, do you do stuff like, uh, like sober coaching to, to actors and stuff like that? I mean, I know you can't yeah, mention we, people. We do. So yeah. yes, we do sober coaching. We do interventions. We do speaking events. We guide and direct people into treatment. Um, we're, I love you, honey. We're getting involved with, uh, the oldest sober living and boutique treatment center in, in Southern California here. So we got our hands in a lot of different things, but I'll tell you, it's a different world here because Jenny kept saying, wait till you come to LA. The recovery is different. I'm like, bullshit. The recovery is so much different. How is it different? Cause my brother's sober. He lives out there in Hermosa. I've been, I've been to meetings out there a bunch, but it is different. How would you describe so, it? I'll, 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 and I'm the most transparent and honest person you'll ever meet. I, I tell the truth almost two months. About a year and a half ago, I'm I'm 10 years sober, November 1st, I, I had 10 years sober. But about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> I wanted to eat a bullet. I want to kill myself. And I've never had thoughts of killing myself. And I got a new sponsor who's got 33 years sober. He plays in a big band. I won't name his name. I have a grand sponsor who's got 46 years sober. My sponsor does a meeting every day. He's never missed one in 33 years. Um, and I sat down with John and I said, look, you know, he kind of interviewed me. He said, so how much time you got at time? It was eight and a half years. He said, uh, when's the last time you went through the steps? I said, it's been a while. He said, we're going to go through the steps again. He said, what's your routine? And I said, well, I read some books and do this. He said, well, you're going to have at least two to three commitments. You're going to be sponsoring at least three to five guys. 
You can do a gratitude list every morning. You're going to get into transcendental meditation. You're going to meditate 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. You're going to be at my house Thursday night for our home group. You're going to be at Bread and Roses Thursday morning. Oh, you're also going to have at least two commitments at meetings. And yeah, let's get to work. And the group of men I roll with now, I mean, I only hang out with people that are in long-term recovery. They're in the solution. I work and sponsor and work with younger people. and But my sobriety is fucking sacred to me. The most important aspect of my life is my relationship with God and my recovery. Then it's my family. Then it's my work. Because I don't have work and I don't have family without recovery. And it's like we started a Zoom when COVID hit. And I've got a West Side men's group that are the most hardcore, authentic men, any people, I run it every Wednesday and I bring in speakers and every person I've had speak said, Tim, I've never seen a group of <laughs> men like this that are authentic. We we real talk. There's men crying and laughing and supporting. And it's just not bullshit. This is life and death. And that's what makes it different out here. And I love my life. I If I could have a bumper sticker that said property of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd put it on my car and I'd tattoo <laughs> it on my body. I fucking and love it's, it. It's as simple as that. But yeah, we got our hands in a lot of things. But what I do now is I've got more balance. I, I pick and choose what we can really work on, what we can't, because... When Jen met me, I had three cell phones. They were on 24-7. She said, here's your phone. There's a thing on here called Do Not Disturb. You're going to put that on at 9 p.m. every night, and those other phones get rid of them. And that's what I did. And you got what you needed out, out, out of that because you do need We all need time to decompress and to take it easy for ourselves. Uh, that's part of sobriety. All right, Tim, anything else? You're you're the best. Uh, we, we, we've hit an hour. I, I, I can't tell you how much... I've enjoyed talking to you and just and just hearing your story and and it is it's palpable, dude. And it comes through the screen and it comes through the microphone and it really touches people. So thank you. I appreciate it. No, I just want to let people know if you got a heartbeat, you got hope. This is the hardest thing to do. Put your hand up and ask for help. Whether you're in addiction, in addiction, you're struggling with suicidal ideations, you're struggling with mental health, or you're a parent or a loved one of someone struggling, you guys need help too. I'm available everywhere, you know, reach out, find me. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Yeah, please do, man. And Peter, I really appreciate this. Sorry I talked so much. No, that's the best. You're the best kind of guest. You got it, my brother. You be well, okay? All right, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it, dude. Thanks, Peter. See you, buddy. Later, man. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts. You can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. 